Lord, we do commit our time to you and desire to uh, glorify your name. We pray for Sharon and desire that you would continue to use her in in Mexico. And thank you that uh, she's basically committed her life to ministering to people down there. Depending on you for protection and sustenance and enablement, we pray that you grant all those things to her. And as we do look at your into your word, that it would, in fact, not only uh, give us insight, but would also move us and motivate us to commit to walking according to your ways. Commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the book of Romans, sorry there's no screen there. It's on the floor, but that doesn't help. That's right. Like, who was it, Caleb and Joshua held up his arm? Well, we're going to look at not the book of Revelation, but we're going to look at the concept of Revelation, because it's part of the way God evaluates or judges. The last couple of weeks I've been focusing on the concept of God's judgment and mention that history is really a record of God dealing with evil. And judgment is one of the ways that God does it. If you think of judgment as God separating out that that he loves from that that destroys what he loves, every judgment is God dealing with evil and he separates For example, the Genesis Flood, the corrupt culture of that day, separates out one family, and from that one family, we're all related, cousins, way down the line, right? And what we're looking at is a passage that deals with principles of judgment. We mentioned chapter 2, verse 1, real quick here, and I'm going to give you a real quick review. We haven't moved too far into the passage, but we'll pick up. He's dealing with an audience that viewed themselves as somewhat in a right relationship with God, the Jewish community. They were self-righteous. They depended on their heritage. They depended on the fact that they were given the law. They were dependent on the fact that they thought they were a special group, and they were. They were a privileged group, but They were also depending on their own works. So they were depending on their own self-righteousness. As many people today try to please God by doing things, that was true of the Jewish community. So Paul is going to deal with that community, beginning in verse 1. And for them, they need to understand that there are principles that God utilizes in judging and it's, he's going to show them, beginning in verse 17, that basically all these principles apply to them. So beginning with 17, he's going to prove their guilt. And then in chapter 3, he's going to answer some of the protests that they might raise in trying to defend themselves. And really, they don't have a, a leg to stand on because he's going to argue point by point against those protests. So we're looking at the principles of judgment. We've seen it's based on truth. It's based on the fact that no one escapes, including Jewish people. Also based on conduct. And in verse 17, he's going to begin in that paragraph, show that their conduct doesn't measure up. No one's conduct does. It's based on God being impartial. 
Now you might think, well, didn't he give the Jews more? Yes, but he's going to emphasize the point, the Jew first. In other words, the Jew is first in God's judgment. So they don't escape. So they, even though they have the privileges that we'll see, that doesn't mean that they are exempt. So he's going to deal impartially, not only based on truth, not only based on conduct, but irregardless of background and heritage. And kind of an extension of that is verses 12 through 16. And I tried to show you how I get that idea. It's also based on Revelation. And the Jews did, in fact, have the privilege of having more revelation than anyone else. They had direct revelation, Sinai, the law, specific revelation, special revelation. So they were privileged, but God is still impartial in that the principle that we've been looking at, the more revelation you have, the more accountable you are. It doesn't set you apart from God's judgment, but it makes you more accountable to God's judgment. So that's the basic principle in 12 through 16, and that's where we're at. So it's an extension of the last principle because of the four. The four at the beginning of verse 12 joins it to the principle of impartiality. And now he's going to develop that idea of judgment based on revelation, what God has revealed And he's going to do it in two parts. He's going to deal with the Jew first, who are with law. The Jews first, they had the law, and they're going to be evaluated on the basis of law. That's verse 13. And then he's going to deal with the Gentiles who are without law, so they do not have the privilege of that special revelation, but they're still evaluated and they still have revelation. We looked at that in some detail in chapter 1. That's verses 14 through 15. And part of the same sentence that begins in verse 14, I believe. We have verse 16. It starts with when, with a subordinate clause. Final judgment comes. It's going to be based on the gospel, which is the heart of what Paul is developing in the book of Romans. So that kind of puts the whole passage from verse 12 through 16 together, ties it back into verse 11. Is that helpful, the chart there? A lot of parts, you might say a lot of moving parts, try to put them together, helps you to visualize how everything fits together. So from the outline, we're looking at chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, judgment, principles of judgment based on revelation. He's going to deal with Mosaic law, first of all, 12 through 13, and we just looked at this part. So chapter 2 verse 12 begins with 4, tying it back. It's a new sentence, but it ties it back to verse 11, or at least 11 and maybe even beyond that. For all who have sinned without the law. Remember we stressed last time, and I gave you a detailed word study. The word without law is just one word in the Greek text, but it's related to the other word. Later on, and all who have sinned under the law, part of the same word group, it's just negated in the Greek text. So he's talking about essentially the same concept here. It's capitalized, indicating that it's some special law and references to the probably the Mosaic law. So we looked at a word study that lays out all of the different usages 
And I emphasize for you all, when you do a word study, these are the things that you do. You look up all of the usages that are contained in the scriptures. And if you want to limit it to the New Testament, you can do that. So you're going to look at Greek words in the New Testament, Hebrew words in the Old Testament, if you can access them. If not, just an English concordance will give you all the listings. And you're going to see how it's used in different ways. First of all, the word law, and I've got the Greek word there, sometimes it refers to all the Old Testament. And I emphasize that you do this in the whole New Testament, but it's used probably more frequently in the book of Romans than anywhere else because Paul is dealing with a courtroom situation, which law is the basis for all judgments, all court proceedings. So all of these are ways that Paul uses it. And I see an example, verses 19 and 20, he's referring to the whole Old Testament using the word namas. He's also in chapter 3, verse 21, probably more specific, referring to the first five books, which we call the Pentateuch. This context, and also chapter 2, verse 20 through 23, he's probably using it referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Specific, the code itself, the law itself. In other words, stipulations. And in verses 20 and 23, he's dealing with specific stipulations. It's also used of civil law. Paul uses that in chapter 7, 1 through 3, where he uses an illustration. And he brings in Roman law using the same word, namas. And also in chapter 2, verse 14, we're going to see a different usage where he's speaking in terms of a, a law that is not mosaic, but it's law in a broader sense, and we're going to develop that this morning as we get into that passage. So that's how you do a word study. Now, if you continue to study, there's other usages as well. In fact, also in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 27 through 28, same word, and New American Standard helps you out and actually translates it as principle, but it's actually namas. It's actually the Greek word. So we went into some detail last time, and you're going to see that if you study the rest of the New Testament, it also will give you some of these categories. In fact, there's some other usages as well, like I think there's some passages that refer more specifically to the Ten Commandments, even, and other usages as well. When I was explaining this, I gave you an illustration last time, and as I was explaining it, idea popped into my mind, I kind of expanded it here, just to illustrate for you how words are used in, in terms of a variety of ways, different usages, and sometimes they're used even in the same context. Remember I stressed that? We have an example of it here. When we get to verse 14 and 15, I'll show it to you. I showed it to you last time. But here's just an example of the, the word outside of the Bible in English that I mentioned has a variety of usages. It has a broad range of meaning. In other words, it's used in drastically different ways in different contexts. And I put it in one sentence, and it's used in a variety of ways. So same context, but in parts of the sentence, the little details 
doesn't confuse you. In other words, your mind automatically thinks of different things when you think of this word. We used the word trunk last time, and I just came up with a kind of an imaginary sentence here. So I've got the word used four times in four different ways, same context, but that context still defines it for you, gives you the clues. So the sentence, pack the trunk in the attic, kind of gives you the context. So we're talking about your mind immediately thinks, oh, okay, that's that box that I store stuff in the attic. It's got all kinds of dust on it. I'm going to pull it down, pack the trunk in the attic, and put it in the trunk of the car. What does your mind do immediately when you have of the car? You don't think of the box anymore. Now you're thinking of an automobile, and you're thinking about that back compartment. So pack the trunk in the attic and put it in the trunk of, of our car so we can drive to Africa and park next to the tree with a large trunk. Your mind automatically shifts. Same word, drastically different meaning. Large trunk in order to watch the animal with a large trunk. Any confusion there? Context is very specific. Yet one word used in the same context can have four different meanings. So also we're going to see the word law in this context, is going to be used at least in two different ways. So it's not unusual, same sentence. Came up with another one to show you that not only when you're thinking in terms of meaning, but even different usages in terms of grammar as well. Another sentence I came up with. When the runner with the running nose noticed that his stopwatch stopped running, he stopped running the marathon and sat down on the riverbank next to the car with the engine running to cool his feet in the running water and let his mind run wild. Same word, but it's used not only in different meanings, but it's used grammatically in different ways. One sentence, and again, this is kind of a sentence I just made up, but that illustrates you look at the details and sometimes you have to look within even a single sentence. But an author has an intent in selecting a word, and in this case, I selected the word running and used it in a variety of ways in one sentence. If you want to look at it grammatically, you could say that when the runner, that's using the same word in a noun form, with the running nose, that's a participle. Did you say running nose? Well, all right. Okay. We could change that. But anyway, it's still a participle. Notice that his stopwatch stopped running. There's a usage of a verb. All right. He stopped running. Another verb, running the marathon, (coughs) sat down on the riverbank next to the car with the engine running. Another participle. To cool his feet in the running water. Another participle. And to let his mind run wild. To let run. That's an infinitive. So it's used as a noun, as a participle, as a verb, and as, as an infinitive. In one sentence, same word or same word group. Make sense? See how you do a word study and see how words work? This is just basic. And this is what you want to do when you study words in the Bible. The Bible is using language, and language is structured in our minds in such a way that it communicates. And the Bible doesn't use kind of some spiritual, unusual language. It uses, in fact, When we describe the Greek of the New Testament, it's called Koine. Koine Greek, it's common Greek. In other words, 
the Greek that was spoken every day out in the culture. So that just gives you a little illustration to expand what we talked about last week. Make sense? Okay. So verse 12, into the text, for all who have sinned without the law, now he's talking about revelation of a particular group. This is the principle that he's going to expand. 13 through 16 is going to expand a principle of accountability. For all who have sinned without the law, speaking of a particular group, the details will expand who he's talking about, who have sinned without the law. In this context, he's talking about the non-Jew because the law we've already seen in this context is referring to the Mosaic law. And the only ones that were without the Mosaic law were those that were non-Jewish. The Bible calls them Gentile, sometimes calls them Greek. So all who have sinned, he's talking about accountability here and judgment, the principle of judgment. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, the end product of this judgment, this separation, is they will perish. And he's developing in this context the concept of all humanity condemned before a holy God. So that's the emphasis of this whole larger section in the book of Romans. He hasn't started dealing with the solution yet. So he's condemning all, all will perish. So it doesn't matter. He's impartial. So we'll also perish without the law. And this is also a review. I went over this, but I didn't give you some verses. There's a growing... I don't want to say a movement, but kind of a trend within the church. You see it in a lot of churches, particularly those that emphasize the love of God. And I mentioned the love of God is certainly an emphasis of Scripture, but it's not an emphasis to the neglect of other attributes of God. And that's where some theologians and some churches go wrong. Yes, we should emphasize the love of God because it is prominent, But we should also teach other concepts, and those that have adopted what's called annihilationism minimize the judgment aspect of God, and sometimes even uh, try to argue it away. And that's one of the things that annihilationism does. And there are some prominent theologians, and I hesitate to mention the names, because uh, at least one of them is very sound everywhere else, except he's adopted this perspective. And if you want the name, I can give it to you later. But anyway, it's based on passages like what we have here. It's it's based on, for all those who have sinned without law, and this is one of the verses that would be used, will also perish. And that word can be used, in fact, it's used in an everyday sense, with the idea of something being obliterated or something being totally destroyed. So the idea of annihilationism is these words like fire, in other words, fire consumes. So they use the idea of this fiery consumption such that there's no eternal suffering, there's no eternal torment, but in fact, the unbeliever is consumed, you might say. Or another word that occurs in context of heaven and hell is the word destruction. In this context, the idea of perishing. 
And the word can be used in that sense in a material way, but in the context, when it's dealing with eternal issues, it has this idea of an ongoing perishing, an ongoing degeneration, if you will. And it does not imply that there's this concept of annihilationism. Also, they emphasize the love of God. How could a loving God condemn anyone to an eternal destiny of eternal torment? Well, that's what the scriptures seem to teach. And the passages that support that idea, I've expanded them a little bit. Is there some passages, and we won't look these up. These are just for your own notes because I want to get further into the passage. The dead seem to be in a conscious state. And one of the passages would be Mark 9, 47 through 48, where it talks about the worm. It's talking about hell, the worm not dying, but ongoing. In other words, there's still life, if you will, but it's it's eternal life apart from God. There are, there's also the parable in Luke. What is it? Luke chapter 16. Now, it's a parable, so you want, don't want to stretch it too far, but in the parable... There's Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is in Hades, as I think the text says. And he has a conversation, and he's asking Abraham to send somebody to his family so they won't end up where he's at. And Abraham says there's no way, there's this chasm, but there's conversation. In other words, there's consciousness. See that? Also, another argument, there are degrees of punishment, in fact. This is the passage where Jesus is reprimanding the cities where he performed many miracles, Capernaum and other ones, Chorazin, where he performed miracles. And many of the people there did not respond. And what did he say? It will be more, what? Tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he mentioned some other corrupt culture. To be more tolerable, the idea that there are degrees of punishment. And how do you de- have degrees of punishment if there's an, the concept of annihilation? So Matthew 11, 21 and following. In fact, you can even start earlier in that passage. And then there are passages that use the word eternal. In fact, many of them. The passage that has the word destruction or one of them also has eternal destruction. So it's an ongoing destruction. It's not a singular destruction where a person is annihilated. And I could give you lots of verses that argue against annihilationism. One of them is Matthew 25, 46, and there's at least 15 others that are very clear that use the word eternal or forever and ever. Sometimes is the way it's translated. Okay, so in the context, that's the principle relating to the Gentile. Those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Then we have another independent clause. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Another independent clause with a subordinate clause within it. The who have sinned under the law modifies or is a whole clause to explain the all in this context. You have two alls, but they refer to two groups. In other words, all Gentiles, in one case, and now all Jews. That's the stress. The Jews do not escape God's condemnation. All who have sinned under the law now are going to be evaluated or judged by the law. 
They have more revelation. They are more accountable. That's the principle that is developing. Now he's going to expand that principle uh, beginning in verse 13, which is next. So we have the judgment based on revelation. That's the principle, verse 12. Verse 13, he's going to expand the idea relating to the Jew. So he mentions the Jew last, and he's going to just keep continuing referring to them. For the Jews without the law, verse 13, four, notice the four there, that's why I put the four up here, you have that connector, four, so, and you also have the semicolon, part of the same sentence, so he's still developing what he talked about. So you have two independent clauses in the first part, and he's going to expand the second independent clause, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. So it's not the hearers. It's very common in the first century for everyday Jewish people to hear the law in the synagogue. They heard it every Sabbath. Not too many people had access to biblical scrolls. You didn't have your little pocket New Testament that you could carry around. You didn't have uh, your iPod that has the Bible in it. You generally learned the scriptures and heard them. Now, some people would write them down and take them home, portions of it, and would read them at home. But in general, you heard the word. So he's talking about, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. In other words, it's not just simply having access or not simply just even hearing it. But in order to have a right relationship, you have to do something beyond that. Now, it's not works. Remember the context. We talked about that already. I'll illustrate it with an example that you can probably think about in terms of maybe if you remember back when your children were young or you had grandchildren. The mother says, Susie, go clean your room now. This kind of illustrates how Susie responds, how sometimes we have that same tendency And certainly in the first century, this was the attitude of the Jew. The attitude of the Jew, they heard the clear statements of God, but what did they do with it? Susie responds, Mommy, I just love your words. They are so eloquent, so precise, so distinct, so beautiful. That's just hearing, right? And admiring, and that's what the Jews did. In other words, they were meticulous in their interpretation and in their devotion to learning and understanding and those that come from a Bible teaching church, that can be the tendency as well. But what's absent here? What does the mother want? Clean your room now. Not to admire his words or not to expand upon them. So no matter how cute those big blue eyes are. The point being here is God is going to discipline that cute little bottom as well. So, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. And then he uses, will be justified. Now, he's not talking, remember the context, he's not saying that you are justified, and he's using the same word that is going to develop justification Justification is not by works. He's going to make that clear. In this context, he's basically laying out the principle. 
if someone were capable of doing the law in the way the law was to be obeyed, if they could keep every aspect of it, because what does James say? You violate one little aspect of it, you're what? You're guilty of it all. So he's talking about perfection. If there be anyone that could do that, and there was only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, then in fact he might be justified. Now he's just developing the principles here. He's not teaching the concept of justification by works. Otherwise he is totally contradicting himself beginning in chapter 3. Because the whole thrust of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5 is justification is by faith and by faith alone, not by works. So in this context, he's simply dealing with this broad principle that the Jew would agree to and realize that if he could, and if he did, in fact, obey the the law perfectly, he would, in fact, be granted justification. Does that make sense? So he's dealing with the principal aspect, not the practical outworking or even the possibility of it here. Now, he'll develop that a little bit more, and he's going to demonstrate that even the Jews don't live up to the law that they have uh, been given. So does that make sense? So there's not a contradiction here. Uh, Don't confuse it. Keep it in its context. The context is he's trying to demonstrate that all fall short. He's going to demonstrate that there are none that are ultimately doers of the law. But in terms of the principle, the, the Jew will be evaluated based on that revelation. And he will be shown to fall short. That's the point of verses 17 and on. Okay, now we can draw an application from this. We have access, we have free access to the Word, and photograph just illustrates that babies don't like to eat meat. What do they want? They want milk. We have a lot of baby Christians in the church that only nibble on the milk. We want to go beyond that. And I think there's a principle that he's developing here in terms of just hearers alone. Those that just hear the word or hearing the word, they're exposed to it, just as the Jewish community was in the first century. They heard it every Sabbath. Exposed to it. They were constantly learning, and they emphasized that aspect. Learning. In our culture, it would be those that are in church, exposed to the word, hearing it all the time. But unless they actually chew on it and digest it and apply it, they remain baby Christians. They don't grow. And in fact, there's a principle that goes even beyond that. And I think this is part of what he's teaching here. If we don't respond, if we remain babies, what happens? We don't stay in a neutral state. What happens? We go backwards or uh, we become hardened to the word. That happens to the unbeliever. If they reject the gospel message, they become hardened to it and reject it further and eventually claim to be atheists even. But there's a spiritual principle here that applies to the believer as well. More exposure to God's Word demands that we continually be responding to it, and as we respond to it, we grow. The alternative is the doing aspect. 
And Paul is using words very similar to what James uses in James chapter 1, being doers of the word, not merely hearers. Paul's using the same language, same community. I think uh, James is written to a predominantly Jewish audience. Doing means that we are not just exposed to the word, but we ingest it, we chew on it, and we pursue the meat. We're not afraid of these difficult doctrines. We study them, we accept them, we ingest them, and we apply. That's the whole idea of doing, is applying the word. Now, you can't apply everything all the time, but we should be consistently applying something most of the time. And when we do that, we are also motivated to minister to others rather than just simply being present. We seek avenues to minister because we want to share what God has taught us. And that leads to maturity rather than remaining baby Christians. See the application? And when we get the word week by week, this is what God desires, that we ingest it, we apply it, utilize it, ministering to others, and that will be a step towards maturity. And we will continually grow. And like I said, we can't apply everything all the time, but to the extent that we do, to that extent we promote spiritual growth. So we have these two alternatives. Now in this context... They pertain more specifically to revelation leading to salvation or to justification, but there's a broader spiritual principle that applies to the Christian as well. This passage is not developing that yet. Paul will get into that beginning in chapter 6, but we can apply it immediately and not wait till we get, wait for what, five or six years till we get to chapter 6. All right. So that is dealing with the Mosaic law. Now he's going to deal with the the Gentiles who have another law. We can describe it as a moral law. And we'll see that same word. So here's the entire sentence. And like we normally do when we come to a sentence, you want to break it down. And what do you start with? What do you look for? Well, first independent clause, but if you look for the subject and the verb, that will give you basically the first independent clause. What is the first independent clause? For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they see how it keeps going and going and going. Paul has a habit of giving us long sentences. Here's a good example. 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, comma. We have verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Long sentence, somewhat complicated, but if we break it down, we'll be able to see all of the different parts. First independent clause, I gave you some time there by reading it. Anyone come up with it? Hmm? You got it? Gentiles do instinctively the things of the law. Well, who do not have the law? I think you're... Gentiles do instinctively. Do is the main verb there. Gentiles are a law. I think you're right. Linda's right. Gentiles are a law to themselves. There you go. These, referring back to the Gentiles, are a law to themselves. Now, you can include not having the law 
It's just a phrase that's part of it. But it actually goes all the way back to that dependent clause when Gentiles who do not have the law do it simply as a law. Good. Linda gets the uh, star today. I already had it in blue. How do you know? Oh. <laughs> no, you just came up with it. That's why it popped up there. Yep. So that's the independent clause. Everything else is going to expand on on that unless there's a second independent clause. So it's going to talk about these. Who are the these? First dependent clause tells us who the these are. When these who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. That's who the these are. Not having the law kind of tells a little bit about, expands Gentiles who instinctively have the things of the law. Verse 15, in that, just going to kind of elaborate on these are a law to themselves. He's going to emphasize this moral law idea. And notice the law is not capitalized. All of the others are capitalized. So in that part of the sentence, even in verse 14 by itself, we have the word law uh, three times. Who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. And New American Standard helps you by not capitalizing it. So it's telling us, and if you look at the Greek text, it's namas, same word that we talked about before. Same word, but used in a different sense, different meaning. The first three are probably using it in the same sense that we saw in verses 12 and 13, referring probably to the Mosaic law, the code, that that is the the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. These are a law, different law. It's not the Mosaic law. In fact, we need to expand that. They're a law to themselves. Now, if you want to break the rest of it down for when... Gentiles, then we have a subordinate clause within a subordinate clause who do not have the law when Gentiles do instinctively things of the law. That's all a subordinate clause, but you have a subordinate within a subordinate. And then in verse 15, in that, we have another subordinate clause, and that runs all the way to verse 16. And then in verse 16, you have another subordinate clause. And there's little clues that give you that, and that's how you break it down. See that, Linda? That whole first chapter of Ephesians, is concept of right and wrong. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, that's just really, we actually have this, it's a law, a law of that we all know, but we are free to break it. Law of spiritual nature. That's another use. Like uh, laws of nature or laws of science is a different use. This is, a, this is more of a spiritual, we have, universal. Yeah, the law, we, yeah. have to, we have to obey gravity. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the law... But... That's, that's the point. But there's still consequences. Right, that's right. That's what we... Yeah. Well, there's consequences to violating... Gravity. Yeah. Physical law as well. Exactly. You can jump off a 10-story building and say, I'm going to violate this law. Yeah. You can't escape it. So also, in fact... Physical realm is an illustration of the spiritual realm in many ways. All right, so back to our little chart here. He dealt with the Jews in verse 13. Now he's going to deal with the Gentiles without law, 14 and 15. Hmm? They don't have that law. They have have a moral law. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law, let's look at the first part. So we're talking about Gentiles, very clear. And they don't have the special privilege of special revelation. They don't have the Mosaic law. If they do instinctively, the word instinctively, in other words, by nature, and we saw this word already in chapter 1, in other words, that that is natural, that is built in, that God has created us with certain characteristics, one of those creative characteristics that God has built in is that he has put within us not only what chapter 1 says, an awareness of his reality, number 1, verse 20, actually 19 and 20, but he's also put within us by nature or by creation, he's put within us a sense of right and wrong, you might say, or a moral law. We do instinctively the things of the law. These, not, and he emphasizes not having law, are a law to themselves. The Gentiles are. Yes, that's what it's saying. Yeah. Exactly. Now, if the Gentiles are a law unto themselves, that would include Jewish people as well. So the Jews doesn't exclude them, but he doesn't mention them here because he's dealing with the issue of uh, the special privilege of the Jews. They would have that as well. In other words, it's built into them, but they have the specific stipulations of the Mosaic law in addition to a law that is under themselves. And just kind of an illustration here, found a cartoon. That's Moses, by the way. We were kind of hoping to let our conscience be our guide. So we have an illustration here of moral law. We're going to talk about conscience later on. We won't have time to look at it today. And what else is in view there? Ten Commandments, Mosaic law. And that's what we're distinguishing in this passage as well. All right. So let's talk about the moral law, and we'll conclude here and pick up and probably expand this next week. So we've already seen that there is a law that is instinctively that underlies the Mosaic law. And you can see this from uh, the way the law is dealt with throughout Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, Nine of the Ten Commandments, I was going to say all except one, which is nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Ten Commandments, minus the Sabbath observance, are part of what we would describe as a moral law. In other words, they underlie the Mosaic law. Were they in effect before God gave the law on Mount Sinai? Yes. It goes all the way to Adam and Eve. Yeah, so it underlies the Mosaic Law. It's not simply contained in the Mosaic Law. You weren't to kill. First sin of the second generation was murder. Cain murdered Abel and was judged for it. So it underlies the Mosaic Law. So it's broader. And what that does, it makes it eternal. You see it from the very beginning. In fact, God specifies certain things before he specifies the clear a special revelation of the Mosaic Law. And we are not under law. Does that mean that we can murder now? No, because the moral law continues to abide. And that moral law is kind of like the natural law. You can't change it. It's always there. But you can disobey it. But you can disobey it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you can disobey the natural law too, but there's, there's consequences. Yep. So it's eternal. It's also universal. So it's applicable. This passage says the Gentile has it as well. In other words, no one escapes this. Just like no one escapes the law of gravity. So even the Muslim is that God, there's still a sense. Yes. They have built in within that them. That it is wrong. That it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but that they're condemned. All right? It's instinctive is what the text itself says. It's built in. It's by creation. It's part of the image of God. It's what God has put there. Can't escape it. We have this sense. He's going to expand on this. We don't have time to get to the details today. But the passage, verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Who wrote it? The lawgiver wrote it. In other words, he built it in. So that moral law is internal. The Mosaic law is external. You can read it. You can study it. That moral law is internal, and it's there, and no one can escape it. Therefore, people instinctively have a sense of right and wrong. Now, when we talk about conscience, we're going to see that you can sear your conscience. When you've done that, you have totally distorted that whole inward revelation that God has given. And in some cases, you do the very opposite, or you think that the very opposite is right because your, your conscience is basically seared. Well, look at that next time. So, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, that's where it resides. And I want to spend some time talking about conscience next week. The Bible has much to say about it, and there's some great applications that we can draw as believers as well. Now, this is written primarily in the context dealing with the unbeliever, Paul is condemning them, and the basis of that is everyone has revelation. And what you do with that revelation determines your eternal state. So, the moral law resides in the conscience, and that's where we'll pick up next week. Closing application here. The more revelation one receives, whether believer or unbeliever, the more responsible he is to respond to it. And Bill shortened it to revelation requires response. more revelation one receives, the more responsible he is to respond. That applies to believer as well as unbeliever. Major principle. Who wants to close for us? Terry. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Romans. And just pray that, Lord, we could be not only hearers of the word, doers of the word, we could take your revelation, apply it to our lives, grow your love. Thank you for this, Jesus' name. Amen.